it's good evening, everybody. That was very quiet. Uh, good evening, everybody. Hey, there we go. There's life in the room. It, it, uh, feels, it must be like we're coming into the fall. There's so many announcements, so many things happening, and there's a, you know, an icy truck in our parking lot with lights shining, and I'm really amazed anyone's in the room, actually, because that truck was just so, like, alluring. So glad you're here. Glad you're at church. Um, and yeah, so we are going to dive into our sermon this evening. And we are continuing on in this kind of end of summer mini-series that we've been in, focusing on this um, topic of evangelism, what it means to share our faith uh, in Jesus with others. And we've been rooting this series in the book of Acts and kind of finding little uh, moments in the book of Acts to kind of learn from as we've been going along. And today, uh, the message is actually, I, I want to say it's a very simple one. Sometimes I find a way of making things that are simple more complicated than they need to be. Um, but I think it's a simple message. And just at, right at the outset, I want to just say what it is. I think the basic idea is this that we want to consider. It's that whenever we share our faith in Jesus, who Jesus is with other people, it is always a good thing and a helpful thing to at least begin by looking for common ground and then looking to build bridges on that common ground towards the, the full reality of the gospel, right? So, so we look for common ground and we build upon that common ground towards the reality of who Christ is. And that's as opposed to the, the opposite, which would be to kind of ignore uh, where someone is in their spiritual journey and to pay no attention to where someone is or to kind of just instantly dump, jump into kind of critique and attack mode, right? So start with looking for the common ground and build upon it is, is basically the idea. And so uh, the text that we'll be looking at tonight in relation to this is actually, will be very familiar if you were here last week, because it's the exact same text, Acts 17, and I have the joy and privilege of inviting Bonnie Whipple to come forward and read that scripture for us. So thank you, Bonnie, for coming, coming this way. Okay, if you are able, could you please stand and we are going to read the scripture together. As Brian already said, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bonnie. Please remain standing and let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you for this time that we have to gather around your word. And Lord, for the ways you've already been at work in this time, Lord, through the scriptures that have been read, the prayers that have been prayed, God, through the songs that have been sung, all of these simple means you use in our lives to draw us to yourself, to continue to glorify yourself in this world, and to build up your church. Please do that work continually now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Right. So, dear church, as we continue uh, seeking to ask and hopefully to answer this question tonight of how was it that folks in the early church went about sharing their faith, at least one of the answers that we can give to that question is that believers in Jesus in, in the first century, in the early church, they shared their faith thoughtfully, very thoughtfully. One of our messages a few weeks back, uh, we focused on the need to be prayerful in our evangelism. And tonight, I'm thinking a lot about this idea of being thoughtful in how we share the faith and share Jesus with others. Uh, we see as modeled in our text tonight and in other places that believers in Jesus in the first century, right after Jesus had ascended, are those who are being reflective in a very mindful way, not only about the gospel itself, but also on who it is that they are speaking to. They're reflecting very uh, mindfully about the audience, so to speak. Who was listening? Who's in dialogue? Who are they in dialogue with? As we see all throughout the book of Acts, really, we see guys like uh, Peter and Paul and Stephen and so on, we might note, and we've already seen a bit of this as we've come along these few weeks, that there are no uh, pre-planned out kind of uh, stump speech, cookie cutter uh, ways to package and deliver the gospel that we see kind of repeated in the, in the uh, book of Acts. What we are seeing, it's not like a one-size-fits-all kind of tract, but rather we're seeing modeled by these early witnesses of Jesus that these are people who were, to Josh's points from last week, observing and listening. They were reflecting deeply on what this or that person needed to hear, what this or that group needed to hear, and then they were speaking with care, speaking with clarity to make Jesus known to those who were listening. As I said just a moment ago, once they did begin speaking, often the way they would speak was not instantly by just kind of, hey, we're gonna just ignore the uniqueness of the person or the group of people that are standing uh, right in front of me. They didn't begin speaking by immediately going into that critique and attack mode. No, they, they went into connecting the dot mode. They began to look for and to see, to find and began highlighting commonalities 
that they could notice and point to as overlapping realities between what this or that person believed and what the gospel proclaims. What, what person's, person A's view is and the gospel of Jesus, how do those two sync up and overlap? What group B's perspective is and the reality of Christ, how do these connect? I have a slide actually to this effect, I think. Yeah, there you go. Visuals are sometimes helpful uh, for me, and you kind of see there described, uh, or visually, what I just described. Kinda these two uh, circles intersecting, and that common ground in between that builds out towards the truth of the gospel. And what is implied here is that basically the first thing that people were doing is that as they were sharing the faith or the reality of who Jesus is, they would look for things that they could affirm. They would look for things that were good and right and true. And they would start with those things. Uh, and then from there, they would build into the, the fullness of the reality of the gospel. Uh, it's, it's like if one, you know, Peter or Paul were here today or this evening, they would say, hey, you know, they were speaking to someone who was not a follower of Jesus. They would say, you know what, you, I, I see in your life, you already believe this. Or you already trust that. You already have in your life this value that is uh, reflective of something that is near to the heart of God. Or you have X, Y, and Z aspect of God's character in your life. Let me now, as, as we see those things and know that they are good, let me now kind of explain to you the fullness of the goodness of the gospel and of who Jesus is. And go from there to kind of fully explain the truth. Now, of course, as you're hearing this, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, simple enough, I get it, Brian, and that, that sounds nice. It sounds kind of friendly. Look for commonalities. Look for things we can agree on. That sounds happy and good, right? But you might be thinking to yourself, okay, first of all, Brian, I think, you know, you need to prove this by showing it to us in the scriptures, which that's my plan to do in the next few moments. But also, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, you know what, Brian, I don't know if I buy this, because you know what, I've read the book of Acts, you know, and it very often there are there are moments in the book of Acts that are not friendly and cozy and comfortable as the early disciples and witnesses of Christ are, are seeking to make Jesus known in the world, right? Just think about the examples of the guys that I was just talking about. Guys like Paul and Peter and Stephen specifically, right? These are guys who got into I mean to say the least, big back and forth, big arguments. They got into uh, very heated, and I mean, to go to the ultimate example, Stephen, right, became the first martyr, right, for his, uh, his desire and for his faithfulness in witnessing to Jesus. Uh, Paul, at one point, got stoned. Peter got thrown in prison for his witness and faithfulness to testify to who Jesus was. So you might be thinking, hey, like, why are you talking about, you know, you know, like, let's find commonality. And, you know, this, you know, this sounds like really nice. And that's not what we see in the book of Acts. But remember, caveat here, I'm talking about how the conversation begins. And how we see conversations beginning and how that's modeled for us by the disciples. And how, you know, how the conversation ends up once the fullness of Christ and the fullness of the gospel is shared. That's another story, right? 
how someone reacts once the reality of the resurrection is proclaimed or, you know, the reality of who Jesus is begins to kind of encroach on someone's business or their, you know, their, their idols, which they may or may not even know that they're clinging to. Things get rough at that point. But the beginning, as far as the, the believers and the, and the disciples are bringing the message the model that we see, the pattern that we see in Acts again and again is this pattern of looking for common ground, looking for commonality and going from there. So that's what I want to do for the next few moments, look at what we see and how we see this in Acts 17 and kind of dig in. Um, one note, um, I, I went way too long this morning when I was going through these points. And so I need to like, I'm going to be trimming some things out tonight, maybe a little bit on the fly. Um, because one of the things you'll note is that, you know, Paul's sermon here, his message is about 10 verses as we see it. It's Bonnie read it for us. And there's probably at least about seven instances of the, Paul kind of bringing up this common ground that he's kind of establishing before he kind of rolls into and bridges into the fullness of the gospel. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of walked through all seven of these examples this morning, and that was way too much. So uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cut at least a few tonight. So um, just know that as I'm, as I'm diving in and going along. So if you're ready, buckle up. We'll do first one. You ready? First one. Okay. First example of Paul kind of hinting at showing us some common ground as he is talking to these Athenian people uh, in Athens of all places. Um, <laughs> so what do we see? Number one is that Paul is highlighting that uh, these Athenian people who are listening to him in the Areopagus are worshipers. They are worshipers. That is, they are people who acknowledge the reality of something greater than themselves. And they have some instinct, some impulse within them to give honor, to pay homage to this something or this someone or this group of someones uh, that, that is greater than them, right? That's worship. See this right out of the gate in verse 22 and verse 23. Uh, says, Paul, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Verse 22, and then he goes on, verse 23, he notes that he has, can see the objects of their worship. Right, so the fact that they are very religious and that they have objects of worship all over the place is this indication that these are people who even if they do not know the Lord, they have this impulse to worship something, someone. And Paul, right out of the gate, he, he doesn't like criticize that, right? He doesn't jump on that right out of the gate and, and make this a bad thing. He, he's affirming it as common ground and saying, hey, I can work with this, right? Th th this, is, this is something that is common in human nature to give praise, to give credit, to give worship. And this is a point that, that we, can, we can begin to build off of as we want to talk about the fullness of the truth in, in Christ. So the Athenians were worshipers. That's the first thing we could notice that Paul is highlighting here. Move on to second, second point here, number two. Uh, not only were the Athenians worshipers, but also we see that as part of their kind of worshiping worldview as theists, they, they had a category, it seems, very clearly for mystery. What I'm going to call mystery. And, you know, we see this in uh, 
verse 23, again, looking back at that same verse, where Paul is highlighting the reality of this altar that has this inscription to the unknown God. And so, again, I think this, Paul is taking this and seeing this. This is a point that he can, he can work with, right? That he can build off of as he's seeking to c- communicate the reality of the truth of who God is in Christ. Because it is a good thing for a person to be able to acknowledge that there are some things that go beyond our rational uh, understanding, right? That there are things that go beyond uh, just our intellect and our ability to kind of fully process what is going on in certain situations. To be able to acknowledge that there are things happening kind of behind the curtain that are mysterious to us is, is a good uh, sign of humility because it means that you're taking your human finiteness seriously, right? And the reality is we are all finite human beings and so I think Paul is saying here that the fact that these uh, people in Athens can say there's mystery here, there's an unknown God that too is, is a, a piece that there's kind of some overlap when it comes to the God of the Bible, right? The God of the Bible is one that we cannot fully explain in every moment, in every way. We, we don't fully understand and can't explain his will in every respect. Think about the realities that we have from our perspective, looking at all that we, we know, kind of the benefits of history. We know the reality of God as, as Trinity, right? The three in one, and there's some reality to that that is mysterious to us, that kind of blows our minds. Some reality to the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man, which we take to be just, that's just orthodox theology. That's just, you got, you know, that's down the line. That's what you, what you need to know and believe, and yet we can say that, and yet there's, there's something of a mystery to be able to understand, okay, how can, how can in one person there's fully God and fully man, like, Mind-blowing mystery, right? So Paul's saying, hey, you can acknowledge an unknown God, and I can use that as, okay, a jumping-off point for explaining who God really is even more. I'll take it. Thirdly, keep going. Uh, Let's see. What's this third point? Yeah, so... So, yeah, so as theists on some level... And as those in uh, this place who have been highly influenced by the philosophy of uh, various guys like Plato and Aristotle, uh, there seems to be generally in this crowd of people that Paul is speaking to uh, a, 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 a general acceptance of the reality of God being a, cre- there, there's a creator deity, Right? They believed in some kind of creator deity. And even if it was not the, you know, personal creator deity who, that we know from the scriptures, we see, as Paul is talking about in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, that that is this hint that there is, again, this point of overlap. God as creator. And so Paul is highlighting that as well. And I think he'd be getting, you know, Heads that are nodding, right? Uh, think of the, uh, the philosophy of Aristotle, who's one of the first guys who talked about this idea of the unmoved mover. Right? So again, that's a very, it's a very impersonal God. That's not the God of Scripture that we see who's intimately involved in history in, it, in every way and kind of orchestrating how things are happening. 
but it, but it is the, this acknowledgement of some creator who started it all. So this again, a point of common ground. Uh, points four and five are ones that I think I'm just going to jump over so we can kind of maybe advance the slides and I'll see what do the slides say if we kind of spin forward. Yeah, so these realities of the divine being or beings not being dependent on human beings. Uh, that again would be an overlap between this Greek philosophy uh, and, you know, right theology as we see in scripture. And then also this reality that God is arranging reality so that people seek him, right? And that too, this, this idea that it is good and right to seek truth and to seek after God, that also is, is a point of overlap where scripture, you know, there are places where the Lord says, you know, seek me, right? And so uh, in, you know, uh, in the first century, especially in the Greek culture, there was all kinds of just focus on how can we really just dive into knowing wisdom and studying and just seeking out all of the things that will make us wise. And uh, there's an overlap that I think Paul is hinting at when he's talking about seeking God. Jump ahead to point six is uh, a reflection on the nearness of God how Paul is referring here to how God is not far from each one of us and how that in the Lord, in him, we live and move and have our being. Josh talked about this last week, how in the context, uh, this is this guy, Epimenides of Crete, who was writing this. You, a lot of us will see a footnote in our Bibles that refers to that. But, you know, even though it was, you know, for the Greeks, as they're thinking about this God who is near and in him we live and move and have our being, they probably had Zeus in their minds. Paul can kind of acknowledge this and say, hey, you've got the right idea, but the wrong God, right? The wrong deity. It isn't Zeus that is this omnipresent everywhere God. It is the Lord. It's, it's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of scripture who is everywhere that we see talked about in places like Psalm 139, how that, you know, if I go to the depths, you are there. And if I go to the heights, you are there. Last one, finally, verse seven, or uh, number seven, rather. I think Paul is affirming this notion that there is a sense of overlap between the nature of divine beings and human beings, right? That there's this kind of kinship, in at least in a very general way, that we can refer think about the fact that all human beings are made in the image of God. And so in that sense, we can uh, rightly think of, you know, offspring, being offspring of God. We know that as Christians, we get to take that to a whole new level as we think about those who have been adopted into God's family and who are children of God in a very intimate and personal way. But Paul here is, uh, again, quoting, as Josh noted last week, this, this guy, Aratus, in verse 28. And uh, this is also where I think Paul begins to uh, kind of turn this corner in verse 28 and then into verse 29, thinking about this theme of being God's offspring. Because it's here that he then begins to say in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being, or we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. And I think that there begins to be a turning point. 
that's when he begins to shift from, okay, there's these things that we can all kind of nod our heads and agree on to some extent, to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge some of these thoughts, some of this worldview stuff that is not, not in line and doesn't fit with the gospel and who Jesus is. But I don't want to go there. I want to stay on this common ground theme. And so like, this reality of the common ground, just kind of zoom out and reflect on all this. We find, again, that as Paul is diving in here, he doesn't ignore the uniqueness of his context. He doesn't ignore the uniqueness of those he's around. He, he acknowledges their culture. And he, and he doesn't drive straight into challenge and critique and attack. What he does is he looks for what God has already done and how God has already worked in this culture and in these people and then he presses in there to affirm the things that he can affirm and then build the gospel from there. So to me, all this then leads to a question for us to kind of make this uh, kind of come home to us in more practicality. And the question might be, how, how does this look? What does it look like for us to be looking for common ground as we seek to share Jesus with others in our current context? Uh, for me personally, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about as we've been going through this sermon series uh, is this book that we've referenced multiple times, which is uh, the book called The Heart of Evangelism. And it was, uh, it's authored by this professor, Jaron Bars, who was my professor uh, for a few seasons, uh, a few semesters, when I was in, at Covenant Seminary, and Josh's as well. And I, it's really brought me back to these seminary days. And, uh, you know, to this day, as I think about the class that I had with Jaron Bars, I think one of the most challenging assignments I ever had came from Jaron. One of the most formative uh, writing uh, assignments he ever gave, or that I ever received, was one that he gave, and it was this assignment to write a 10-page letter to a real person in your life, a 10-page letter to someone in your life who was not a Christian, 10-page letter to a, to a, a non-believer, an unbeliever, and seek to use some of these principles that he was kind of outlining in his book, and starting with, for example, finding common ground. And so for me, one of the ways this got super real was uh, I, in this assignment, I decided to write to my brother. And, uh, you know, I won't tell the whole story of my relationship with my brother because that would take way too long. But um, it, was, it, was, it was really a formative assignment because, you know, as I, th I just briefly think about my relationship with my brother, you know, we're, you know, we're 14 months apart. I'm, I'm older by 14 months, but we did everything growing up together. Uh, you know, same home, same parents, did all the same sports together, all the things, right? Uh, and at a certain point, you know, when we started kind of coming of age, uh, we started struggling and wrestling, right, and asking questions in similar ways. And, you know, as, as I was wrestling and struggling, eventually, I will say, by nothing except the grace of God, my struggles and questions eventually led me to my knees. And, and I said, God, like, if you want me, help me. I cannot figure this out. I can't answer these questions. My brother's struggling and wrestlings with the things of faith led him ultimately to this day to be one who 
cast it all aside and said, I'm, I'm rejecting this. this I, I don't believe any of this to be true. And so as I thought back on this and I thought about this letter, you know, one of my brother's object, objections, you know, or, or uh, I think sometimes in terms of uh, the language that Tim Keller uses where he talks about um, defeater beliefs, right? A defeater belief uh, is uh, something that if you hold this belief to be true, Christianity cannot be true. And so for my brother, one of the things that, you know, as he was developing and kind of thinking through and processing what scripture said and slowly more and more rejecting the things that we, that we find in scripture, one of these things that became a defeater belief for him, for Christianity, was the reality, the doctrine, the teaching of hell. And for him, uh, the, the teaching, the doctrine, the idea of hell became uh, one that was completely untenable. It became atrocious to him, repugnant. And, uh, you know, to make this, you know, like I said, a much longer story, more brief, as I wrote this letter to my brother, uh, as this unbeliever in my life uh, in seminary, uh, one of the big points of common ground that I sought to hit on and to emphasize in my letter was just to say that, you know what, my brother that I love, there is something right about not liking hell. Right? Like, like there is something correct about being repulsed by this, rea this, re this reality that we might spend an eternity apart from God and from his presence. There's something that is close to the heart of God in that kind of reaction to say, you know, uh, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject all of this. Right? There's places in scripture like Ezekiel 18, two places where Ezekiel speaking prophetically, the voice of God says things like, you know, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Places in like 1 Timothy where Timothy's, uh, I'm sorry, Paul rather makes it very clear that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so I was able to use those verses and say, hey, there's overlap here, brother, you know. You want to completely reject Christianity out of hand because of this idea of hell and it's repugnant. I get it, but that, that instinct to not like and to be uncomfortable with hell, that's, that's in scripture as well, right? Jesus, he, t he talks about it, right? It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So I can affirm you in not liking this thought, a lot more that could be said about that letter and the ways I think I needed to repent of some things just for my tone in, our, in some of my conversations with my brother and the ways that we had carried that out, ways that I had just kind of wanted to win, selfishly just wanted to win him back to my team, you know. But at the end of the day, that was just one example that I came across as I was doing this assignment, something I never, I don't think would have come, come to on my own this point of common ground of being able to acknowledge, yeah, there's something right and good about this instinct. And, you know, of course he was missing some, some key points, right? He was missing the realities of the holiness of God. He was missing the realities of, of God's justice. He was missing the realities of God's mercy and grace and, and how that all of this works together, you know, as we're trying to understand and grapple with eternity and what God says about eternity and where we're all headed. And yet, it was good for me to be able to just 
stop and pause and acknowledge, hey, I, I see what you're saying here, and it's important, and it's right. There's something right about it. So this is what we can do. We can think, we can pause, and bridge the gap to the gospel and the fullness of the truth in Christ and what we see in the scriptures. So I think I'm probably still going long, even though I tried to cut some of this out, but I want to wrap us up super briefly, just kind of closing three, uh, three takeaways that will be just little nuggets for us. So as we think about looking for common ground, where does this leave us? Number one, I think first of all, uh, there's a call here for us to consider slowing down. Try to slow down. It's easier said than done, especially depending on your life stage. Uh, it's slowing down is hard. But it's important to slow down, not only in life in general, but I think uh, I'm thinking specifically about in our, in our conversations with people in our attempts to, to witness to Christ, or wit be witnesses of Christ in, in our evangelism, it is good for us to slow down, to begin to think about who we're actually talking to, and what is actually on their heart, what are the core values that make them tick, and where might there be overlap between something that makes them really excited or something that they really hate and the heart of God. We, don't, we miss these things if we're, if we're going really fast. It's really the applying the wisdom of James, right? To be quick to hear and slow to speak. So slow down. Second uh, kind of practical application takeaway for us, seek to be more of an affirmer. Someone who can affirm the things that are good and right in other people's lives. Pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see the good and the right and the true in other people's lives. Even if generally this is someone who you're saying, like, I don't agree with how they're living or what they're doing, there is always something because we, we you know, this is our Father's world, right? He is the creator. He, the, his common grace is everywhere. There's always something good and right and true that we can affirm in someone's life. And so pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see those things and so that we can then move from that especially for those who don't yet know Christ and move towards the gospel. Lastly, thirdly, I'll, I'll just throw this out there. Consider writing your own letter, your own letter to an unbeliever, someone in your life who, who does not currently know Jesus as Savior and as Lord, and do the take up the Jerem assignment. Why? Well, first of all, I think, you know, to the first point, it'll help you slow down. If you're writing a 10-page letter, it'll slow you down, right? It's, uh, you know, it's not just a text message. It's not even an email, right? Write a letter, it'll slow you down. It'll make you more reflective. It won't just be, you know, verbal, you know. I want to say a word that probably isn't appropriate to say in the pulpit, right? Just verbal stuff coming out of your mouth, right? Secondly, uh, write a letter like this. It will deepen your reflections on your, actually what's going on in your life and your heart and this person's life and their hearts. And then ultimately, it'll help you to see that common ground. And I think it'll draw you into prayer, which again, going back to that sermon from a few weeks ago, as you're writing this letter, you begin praying. That's essential, right? 
That's, that's the calling we have to be, to be praying, that the spirit of God would be at work. Because ultimately that is what is needed, right? We could be the best evangelist in the world. We could be the worst evangelist in the world. Ultimately what is needed is the spirit of God to work, right? Whether we're clumsy and horrible at talking about Jesus or whether we're super slick, it's got to be the Holy Spirit of God who does the work, connects the dots. Uh, close with a confession. You know, that, that letter I wrote to my brother, I think it was in a lot of ways, I read, I, re- I reread it this week. And uh, a lot of it was really, I mean, not to compliment my own work, but it was really good. But here's the thing. I never sent it. I never sent it to him. Uh, you know, I think I, I, I was getting ready to, I don't know, graduate or other things were going on. And, you know, I think I had in my head, well, maybe I need to tweak a few things. And I never sent it. And I think as I'm reflecting now and this week, I think I need to. I think I need to send that letter, even though it's like a decade old. And some of the things I'm referring to in the letter, I'm like, wow, I, I'd forgotten that that even happened. I think it still has value because it's, it's referring to these timeless truths and these themes of who God is and who my brother is that haven't changed. So God might still use it. So praise the Lord for letters. Praise the Lord that he has written us a letter, right? Even more than a letter, he's written us a book and he has given us himself that we might know him. Praise be the Lord. He becomes our bridge, right? Let me pray for us. We'll go to the table. Father in heaven, God, thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and steadfast. Lord, that you are loving. God, that you are continuing your work in this world to make yourself known. God, continue to do that to each one of us, Lord, whether we've known you for years and years, Lord, or, or whether we don't know you at all, God, continue your, your ministry, your continued kingdom work on this earth. God, thank you that you do. Lord, even when we don't ask, you're doing it. And God, thank you that you give us your gifts of grace like your word and like this table that we're about to partake of. Prepare our hearts to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.